0: All right, here we are. It's uh, Friday, January 28th. My good friend Gerald Ashley coming in. Where are we finding you, Gerald?
1: Um, I think I would say London, England, though more precisely. (laughs) You
0: would think. You're not sure.
1: Yeah, well, well, no, I do uh, know where I am, Um, although it's after lunch. Um, Surrey, you know, leafy Surrey outside London. There you go.
0: Fantastic. I'm in uh, Old Town Alexandria on the shores of the Potomac River. About five miles from the U.S. Capitol, which is still standing, which is positive. So, here's the deal: we're going to our plan for 2022 is to do uh, 2021 20, of these. Going to meet every other week, talk kind of uh, global politics, global business, global commerce, culture, uh, whatever we find interesting, and uh, you know, have some fun.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Why don't we kick off with a nice uh, international thing and wish uh, any uh, Chinese viewers or listeners. Kung Hai Fat Choi, which is, of course, uh, Happy New Year. Um, That is the sole amount of my Chinese. Um, And for people who like to have a little bit of drama in their life, it's the Year of the Tiger. And that can be both positive and negative, depending how you want to uh, look at it. So that kind of sets you up there, really, Mark, to uh, to take take it on from there.
0: Now, I'm excited for the uh, year of the Tiger. Hopefully, it'll be a good fortune. And uh, yeah, a week from today, uh, our friends in uh, Beijing will be kicking off the uh, Winter Olympics. I think Beijing is the only city to host both the Winter Games and the Summer Games. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of exciting.
1: I kind of like the Winter Games more than the Summer ones. So just, you know, there's more kind of action rather than just running around in circles um so you know <laughs> i, I kind of like uh this lunacy of the bobsleigh and then these yeah the bobsled uh,
0: sled is an amazing sport the luge i mean yeah. these are pretty amazing sports
1: and then you've got the total lunacy of uh is it the luge which is basically people on a tin tray sliding down some sort of you know lunatic course and of yeah. course uh, the ski jumping which is brilliant so i quite like the winter olympics
0: yeah, no, it's uh, it's actually, yeah, I mean, for us here in the States, obviously, hockey and the downhill skiing and, um, you know, ice skating is super, super popular in the States, and uh, invariably, whoever, whatever U.S. American does well, right. and the ice skating usually gets on a box of, uh, you know, gets a deal with Procter & Gamble and, you know, starts selling cereal the next day, so the commerce is always interesting.
1: I can't remember the name of the guy, so I'm in trouble already, but I think Britain's got quite a useful downhill skier um this year yeah yeah is- he,
0: uh, yeah. i can't recall his name maybe we'll have our uh crack our research team look into that and post it in the uh show notes um but he won he won a big race last week and um i think the first time a brit has ever won a world cup downhill ski race in like fifty yeah years or something.
1: I, hopefully it's not one of those um one-offs uh he apparently is very talented and all the rest of it but I mean, the old excuse that used to be it was far too difficult for us to get over to the Alps and practice, which always seemed a pretty weak excuse, um, but um, British skiing seems to be um, getting its act together.
0: Yeah, no, it is interesting. So It's funny you mentioned that because even some of the best skiers in the US actually grew up in the Midwest or in the uh, Northeast in Vermont mm-hmm. or New Hampshire, not in the uh, kind of the Rocky Mountains. And uh, yeah, um, yeah I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much hill you need to become a good skier, but uh, it seems like you just need to be a bit fearless and <laughs> down the hill quickly.
1: I guess, you know, it's like a lot of these things, you have to start really early. I mean, I, I have vague memories of seeing bits of videotape um, of Tiger Woods playing at like four and five years. Yeah. Old. So it's, you know, the story or, or the secret to success is pushy parents, isn't it? No,
0: nah, I mean, um, well, as an aside, like, I'm a, I should have been a ski bum. I'd be much more qualified for that and uh, love to ski and actually think about skiing a lot. And my wife, who grew up in Florida, um, had never saw had never seen snow, let alone a, a proper ski hill, well into her 30s. And, uh, you know, we put her on skis for one day and that was it. And her classmates in the ski school were, you know, six and seven years old. So right. uh, there's certainly benefits of starting... <laughs> starting skiing early. Yeah,
1: it's like music and all these things. I guess. So, what's
0: well, that's a-, a good pivot to um, our first topic, which I've made these flashy cards. Can you see this? This is great. This oh, is yeah, great production value. Good. Um, um, okay. So, Russia, Ukraine. Suddenly, Europe is—it's uh, all about Europe. It's all about. I mean, we're living maybe in the 1800s again. What is happening with Russia and Ukraine? Can you sort it out in two minutes?
1: Yeah, there you go. That should be quite straightforward. Um, Well, the first thing to say, it really goes back, I think, to the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was, of course, November, I think, 1989.
0: 1989,
1: correct. Yep. Uh, Basically, we had a frozen world, obviously the Cold War and everything, but everything was very settled. And really the kaleidoscope got shaken up. Obviously, the Soviet Union fell apart. We had a lot of trouble in the Balkans, but nobody really thought so much about north uh northern and eastern europe but in fact yeah. the history books show us it's a very very fluid part of the world i mean rather astonishingly maybe to some people poland actually disappeared as a country between about 1790 and the end of the first world war 1918 and various german and russian armies have marched um, east and west of one another over hundreds and hundreds of years and sometimes maybe we sort of feels settled in the world, and then everything's in its place. But I think the current events are showing it's much more fluid than that. And um, few things might be up for grabs.
0: Yeah, you wonder if we're at a major, you know, geopolitical, world changing, map changing inflection point, or is this a lot of uh, bluffing, but I think the map is like spot on. Actually, the only part of Poland I've been to is uh, Gdansk or dancing, depending and yeah. when you're looking at the city. And in fact, I have a great map of uh, Gdansk, a German map, and it's all in, you know, it's called <laughs> Danzing, which I find, you know, I think it's from the 40s. It's a great map and um, just the way, the placement of Poland, Ukraine, you know, going back to the czarist Russians, you know, is exactly. Ukraine a part of Russia? It's just really fascinating and, um, and you know you've got, I, um,
1: you've got you've got parts of the map now that are really are Russia, although they say Belarus on them, for example.
0: Correct. Um, yeah. And getting to that, like that is an interesting point because you know Russia has been in parts of Ukraine for eight years, and you know we've been yeah. actually tweeting about this this week, and I've been trying to have some fun with this. Like, what is what is an invasion of Ukraine if a third of Ukraine is already controlled? By Russia, you know, and uh, you know, last week Biden had that, you know, point about if it's a minor incursion, that's okay. So, you know, I mean, nobody really knows how much of Russia is in Ukraine and how much Ukraine is in Russia, and what that means for the world.
1: No, I agree with you, and I, I think the uh, it's quite difficult to tease out how much of this is just uh, mini tremors or whether or not there's a big explosion coming. if you're negative about things, I think it's the first of many tremors uh, and, you know, it will go bang at some point. Um, quite what will trigger that, I think, is quite difficult to see. Um, this is suiting suit Mr. Putin um, down to the ground, I think. Uh, apart from anything else, he's got the oil price up 10 bucks a barrel since the beginning of the year, which is helping him fund all of this. You know, yeah. the Russian economy is basically one word, well, two words, oil and gas. And um,
0: but we, yeah. And speaking of... about and getting yeah. back to China, one of my friends this week, um, who may or may not be a professional spy, it's unclear. But he was telling me that the Russians and the Chinese do have a deal for the Russians to sell gas to China. But he speculates it's at a 30 to 40 percent discount. That is, even though it's a huge market, the Chinese yeah. are not paying the full price that the Europeans are. And you know, as you rightly point out, Russia's whole economy needs needs expensive oil to yeah, run. They,
1: they they live off that. They live off that dollar income, and um, you know they will exploit that obviously to their own advantages. Um, going back to our map of things going east and west, I wanted to drop in a few comments about uh, Kaliningrad. Which um, yeah, if we look at the old map, is is Königsberg, which of course was a very famous city but that has been well i haven't got the full list here in front of me but it's been polish russian prussian uh as well as german and you know we've kind of forgotten about prussia but it was a very strong and powerful uh part of the world and then it joined into the modernization of germany in the 1850s and 60s Um, so what's interesting about Königsberg is if you look on the map it's this sort of strange sort of triangle like a craft cheese shape, almost, um, of the city <laughs> and a little bit of the Baltic coast. But the key is there's only 40 or 50 miles between the pointed bit of the cheese, if you like, and Belarus. And this is called, I think, the Suwalki Gap. I might be mispronouncing. No, I think that's
0: how you pronounce it. I learned about that this week, actually.
1: Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it's a day's drive uh, for any half-decent tank division I don't see that and how do I know but I I I suspect that's not the immediate threat but if you're if you are playing a long-term chess game it's clearly an objective of some sort and tied into that tied into that is Lithuania Um, right you think the Baltic states are quite stable and all sorted yes they are but Lithuania has not a large, but a very vocal Russian-speaking uh, right. population between, I think it's 5 and 8%, and they still feel Russian. So if you were looking for a pretext to march in to Lithuania, it would be very easy for Putin to pull that rabbit out of the hat. So plenty to worry about if, if you want to worry about it.
0: Conquered in the liberation, one of those moves. And actually... Uh... The Swedes apparently moved some troops to an island in the Baltic <laughs> you know, we've all become
1: but- we've all become armchair admirals, haven't we? And <laughs> so we all we all know about Gotland now, which I didn't know exactly two weeks ago. It is a uh, it's a key island in the Baltic, and apparently it pretty much it, it pretty much controls uh, shipping and any any uh, sort of military activity there. And again, I think well, it's just moving one of the pawns on the chessboard and kind of making
0: the point. Yeah, let's go back to like Putin in Ukraine, though. Let's game this out, like in terms of three things. And I think, well, I'll just uh, throw a thing. I think the, what you mentioned, the year of the Tiger, the Olympics, Putin is due to go to Beijing uh, next Friday for the opening ceremony. So I, I don't suspect he's going to launch an invasion till after the uh, opening ceremony because it would be pretty awkward to, I guess, lead a war from uh, Beijing. Um, but what is what is Putin doing? Uh, you know, he's moved all this equipment. He's t- he's telegraphed the world <laughs> that he wants to go in, which doesn't really seem that's how you would do a sneak attack. And there's all these diplomatic meetings going on. I saw today that the Russians and the Brits are going to meet sometime in the next two weeks. So uh, it doesn't seem like there's an immediate situation here. But moving all this equipment would suggest that Putin's got to do something. No, like, won't he have pressure back in Moscow if he doesn't do anything? I
1: think, well, I think two things. I think. Putin has a strong sense of history. And that goes back to this business of where Russia starts and where it finishes. Um, And it may also be a distraction technique from not a particularly happy situation at home. And in fact, he's got to be a little bit careful because um, the Russian ruble has been hammered on this. The Moscow Stock Exchange is is well down i know other exchanges are down this year but uh, moscow is certainly taking a hit and so i think he's got a fine line of um wanting to promote russia and russian interests and probably most importantly respect because I yeah. think there's, there's a, a grave a great feeling in russia that they lost a lot of respect after the the collapse of the soviet union i mean who, who cares about them and all the rest of it and they they just really want to be firmly back on the top table and i think i think that's probably their real objective
0: yeah no i totally agree with that i think the uh human behavior you know i joke that you know national politics is at the federal level here in dc it's, it's high school but with nuclear weapons and i think the, uh just wanting to respect and being uh, hanging out with the cool kids is super important and as we saw there was a german admiral in india who made that very claim. He said, you know, all they really want is respect. And uh, 24 hours later, he was asked to leave, which is kind of interesting. Um, I wanna talk, that is a good segue, because I wanna talk to you about our friends, Germany. Ah. Um, what is, uh, so the, let me, before I'm tee this up, I think there's been a lot of talk here in the States about that this is all to do with the horrible exit from Afghanistan, but does this have more to do with a new government in Germany, Merkel being gone, and uh, Putin seeing an opportunity to test this new coalition government in yeah, Berlin.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, to be honest, um, I suspect the German uh, administration is a little bit shaky. It's got some yeah. very unusual bedfellows in it. You've obviously got the sort of left and uh, the the green components, but with the Chris, uh, with the um, is it the Free Democrats? You've got a sort of Reagan-esque Thatcherite right uh, uh, wing which is very small but it's there's some un- interesting internal tensions in that administration because you've got one half of the government wants to spend money like water and the other half actually wants to do the exact opposite now a friend of mine pointed this out to me and I hadn't thought about it but I think it, it, it's a key factor Germany along with most uh, countries in Europe have proportional representation and currently somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the german electorate are pro-green in one right another they're very they're very uh pro you know safer planet and environmental stuff and all the rest of it and they are dead nuts uh against nuclear power i think a lot of the rest of the world find this bizarre but they're dead nuts against it and and this means that they uh, are always going to have to be reliant on other sources of energy, right? Which means Russian oil and gas, or German and Polish coal. Now, right. how bizarre is it that? Well, the green let government... me stop
0: you there. There's we have some friends in Texas that would love to sell uh, LNG to our uh, German friends. For sure. <laughs> well, I, I'm... Anyways, go ahead. It's, yeah, it's a,
1: it's a global market, but it's it's kind of closer. To yeah, global, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know to get it by pipeline and everything. But you're dead right, LNG is is part of that equation. Uh, But is it not bizarre that in an effort to sort of clean up the world and be environmentally friendly you end up burning more coal? And I saw a report this morning that world demand and world uh, consumption of coal in 2021 was the highest it's ever been. So all this talk that it's a dying energy source and we're going to clean up and net zero and all that of I'm afraid uh, to uh, to invoke Greta Thunberg, it is blah, blah, blah. It's not the reality
0: (laughs) of what's going on. So does that play into Putin's maneuvering too? The fact that you have a more, let's call it green, more environmentally friendly government in Berlin and their their decision to get rid of nuclear power, um, that's also a factor and Putin's decisions kind of yeah, up the energy, quite, up the heat in that part of the world.
1: We shouldn't forget Franco-German relations in all of this, because Macron has got the EU presidency uh, for right. this coming six months. Um, six months that will go quite quickly, obviously, and there's a French elections coming up in not too distant future. But I think Macron sees his opportunity, funnily enough, to exploit uh, exploit the German situation. As must
0: yeah I think him too like didn't they also I think hosted a meeting yesterday it's hard to keep track of all these uh, diplomatic meetings but um yeah I think the French are trying to insert themselves in this situation as well
1: yeah this is an English view of the French but they're at it again aren't they they're kind of inserting themselves into things um we've we've uh, we've had that issue with them for about 800 years so that, that <laughs>
0: Did you think that going back, it's funny you brought up uh, the Berlin Wall, 18, you know, 1989. I mean, was this bound to happen eventually, the fact that, you know, we haven't really figured out eastern kind of central Europe and, well, you, know, I, you, the know, Russian, you know, the Russian idea of being a big superpower has never gone away, even with the wall falling? No,
1: and I think uh, and, um, it's worth thinking about Russia. People say, oh, Russia's not very important. Its GDP is only the size of Spain. Well, I think that's more reflection on whether or not GDP is a use, useful metric, because <laughs> right. they, you know they've got a lot of things we want, particularly yeah. if you include Belarus and Ukraine or parts of it, because you've got uh, all the wheat production and obviously all the natural resources. And, it, you know, they are they are very significant. They were significant during the times of, you know, the Tsars, Catherine the Great, all the rest of it. Rest of it. And that hasn't gone away. So funnily enough, this period from what, 1989, 1990 through till about really the early days of Putin, say the 2010, with the exception where Russia didn't count for so much. You know, we froze them out of G7 meetings and all this sort of thing. Right. I, th- I think they're going to barge their way back into the room.
0: And, um, you know, it's always good to have an opponent to have a mission greater than, you know, yourself. And, you know, I think this plays into a lot of uh, political boxes and kind of human behavior, what you know, Putin is doing here. But I I, I don't know. I I really think in some ways, as he overplayed his hand, you know, I think the response by the West, maybe he wasn't expecting it. Um, They're really, you know, ratcheting up the pressure. It's like dominating the news coverage like never before. There's suddenly more German, Ukrainian, Russian experts than I've ever knew possible. I don't, it, I can't imagine moving all that equipment and not <laughs> doing something with it and yeah. taking it back to but Moscow. It's,
1: it's, isn't it interesting that the West is doing quite well in the information war because, yeah, the media war because they normally, the Russians run rings around us on disinformation and all yeah. that stuff. So we, we seem to have raised our game this time.
0: Now, there is some communication element. I haven't fully thought it through, but just observing it, there's something, you know, nothing happens by accident. And, um, uh, just the amount of attention and just the energy around it, especially because like we, as we started out, you know, going back to uh, the Crimea invasion, uh, the mm-hmm. Russians have been there for eight years and there's been this kind of skirmish, kind of cold, hot war in Eastern Ukraine for well into a decade now. And, um, you know, suddenly now it's like the most important thing in the world and uh, just the sharing of the equipment, et cetera. So super interesting.
1: I, 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 um, I sense that the news cycle will move on and then people
0: start firing <laughs> shots at one another. Oh, uh, that's yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I saw this great inter- you know, there's all this, I saw this great interview today. This uh, middle-aged woman, she's in her fifties, and you know, she trains on the weekends to uh, defend uh, Ukraine. And uh, you know, she's a media celebrity, but yeah, the media will move on. Speaking of moving on, let's go to our next topic. Are you impressed by these? We can't yeah, brilliant. Do this. brilliant. Yeah. Oh, let's right. talk about that's number important. ten. That's p.m johnson
1: um, sue gray there's no news there's no news there <laughs> our, our okay. a couple of drinks parties it's all quite normal um, the whole thing is a complete circus of course um, depending who you ask and who you believe um this is you know one of the most uh, morally reprehensible acts you know in human <laughs> history or oh, it's so irrelevant it, you know it's laughable um probably the truth is somewhere in the middle I think it is true to say that a large part of the British public or a part of the British public are uh, disgusted is too strong a word probably yeah but they they're not happy about it because it's it doesn't play well to this idea that we're all in it together yeah and, um and I think that particularly plays badly against a figure like Boris who, um, you know, he's got this kind of um, uh, persona of running rough, shot over everything. And I think there's a feeling maybe this time he's he's kind of gone a little too far. But how yeah. all this gets resolved, Lord only knows.
0: Yeah, I can't take credit for this. Um, I heard this yesterday um, from William Haig. Um, he was you know, recounting most times when the PM gets booted, by the party it's over policy but this is strictly personality driven yeah it um is. it's behavior personality lack of integrity um
1: well it's so interesting yeah i know two people who've worked with boris and they both quite independently and at different times said to me that you know i said well what's the problem with boris unreliable and that is a i think that's oh, quite a damning thing really you can be unreliable and you know i'm not surprised if keith richards is unreliable right that's kind of funny. right that's exactly what he's supposed to be but i being prime minister of great britain really you have to be a you know you kind of have to play the game a bit more
0: and i think yeah. boris's
1: personality finds that really hard to do he's that guy down the bar who wants to have a good time with everybody crack a lot of jokes and just jolly on through life which is great i'm i'd enjoy his company i'm sure but I
0: think it's different when you're running a country. Well, it, it's uh, if he has that tendency, which I totally agree, he seems like he'd be a great guy to hang with after like a rugby match. Um, but it, it seems like his staff is failing him. Like isn't, you know, they're ambushing him with cake, which by the way, one of the greatest lines I've ever heard ever, um, you know, the chief of staff is sending out these emails. Nobody around him, you know, part of the job as a staffer is to prevent the worst tendencies of the principal to step in it. And, um, you know, <clears throat> it's weird that he doesn't have the staff around him to kind of rein him in.
1: Yeah, because he's a front man. Right. And he's he right. Shouldn't be. He should. That's that's his role. And he kind of, you know, people say, well, Tories will keep him on because he keeps winning elections. Well, he's kind of good at electioneering. And he reminds me of a problem we see in business sometimes. You know, when you hire somebody who's brilliant at the interview, but rubbish at right. the job. And, you know, I mean, he's he is clearly brilliant at the interview, but I, I'm not that certain. He's particularly interested
0: in the day job.
1: <laughs> uh, now
0: you're, Yeah, that line you, I've heard from you about, you know, Boris will be the best former prime minister the world has yeah, ever seen. I think
1: that's his ambition is to be a former prime minister. And then come over to America and entertain you guys at vast expense. You see, that's his Oh, dream. yeah, it'd
0: be fantastic. He'll, uh, he'll uh, sub-residency in Las Vegas at the Caesars Hotel. It'll be fantastic.
1: <laughs> well, let's hope um, he went have a, a, a tape like Adele, you know, bursting into <laughs> tears because the, the sound <laughs> is working or some nonsense.
0: Good inside reference. Um, how? Getting back to the election, though, like, wouldn't anybody have done well against Jeremy Corbyn and... What's the dominant Cummings factor?
1: Well, just- I, think, I think you're right. I mean, you could take the very cynical view that Boris was the least worst horse in the abattoir, that, you know, the choice was just so dreadful. Um, and he obviously had a he had a very strong win. But another feature of British politics, and we've had this all the way back to Tony Blair in 1997, is people win and then they don't actually know what they want to do with it. So yeah. Yeah, Blair's first administration, he did virtually nothing. Um, and then the whole Gordon Brown thing blew up. Gordon Brown really meandered around. Cameron was running a, a coalition, and it was a you know kind of a lot of um, smooth talk and, and, and less action. And Mrs May was sort of fighting for her life almost from day one and um boris has sailed in you know like he's going to rescue everything he's joined the party slightly late but don't worry it's boris time and we'll all have a a lot of fun and of course they you know he got hit by the uh the covid outbreak and all the rest of it but you couldn't accuse the current british government of having any reforming zeal there's plenty of things that if somebody had a reforming bent could do something with in fairness to Cameron, he did open up a lot of things like um, uh, minority rights and some of those things. But we have a tax code that is probably not not in the same league as the U.S. one, but it's insane. I mean, it, is, yeah. it, 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 is, it grows every year and somebody just needs to put a chainsaw through it. But you don't ever hear from a British government they, they want to shake up the system. In fact, Boris wants once seemed to do the exact opposite.
0: Yeah, getting back to the policy, let's game this out. I mean, do you think, I mean, I don't think Boris will, like, uh, the next election I think has to happen by 2025, right? 2024. Um, yeah. And I don't think Boris will be at the top of the party, but I'm not sure how he exits. Um, but even if he was to leave in the short term, it does seem like there wouldn't be any policy change, whether it was Susan Acker- No, I, or, uh, I don't
1: think there would. There's no clear, I'm going to so say there's no clear candidate. There's probably one or two um, two names as possible successes, but it's different from the Mrs. May situation, whereas uh, there there was a solid group of people who were determined to get her out, and they did manage to coalesce around Boris. It's not at all certain whether they would coalesce around Rishi Sunak or, or Liz Truss. Um, so it might be a house slightly divided there.
0: I mean, that's probably why he's still in power, right? I mean, it would seem to me like yeah. if there was a solid decision, who was the, who was going to be number two, who was next in line, that like he yeah. would be gone. But
1: No, there's no. In fact, uh, his official number two is Dominic Raab. He's, um, he's my local MP, actually. A perfectly decent, nice guy. But, I mean, how many people in the street would even recognize him? You know, he has no name
0: recognition. <laughs> <laughs> he's just- so, do like, if, when the report, dro- I guess the report, the Sue Gray report, uh, the most famous woman, she should probably be prime minister. She's so powerful. Well, I guess that drops. Uh, Boris makes a speech. Does he suddenly see Damascus? Like, does he suddenly see Jesus and you know pivot and you know become a great I mean, leader? Yeah,
1: we're, looking <laughs> a we're looking for a trigger point, and one of the trigger points has been um, uh, the sort of unexploded bomb has been um, made safe today because we have got down into the. The sort of minutiae of whether Sue Gray's report has to come second to a Metropolitan Police report. And it's all just going into a big, you know, load of blancmange. And I, you know, I, I think this could run for one, uh, for many weeks, and it, that kind of suits Boris. But the next definite trigger point, which he can't control, are local elections in May. And yeah. um, if he does like, unbelievably badly, I think then somebody will tap him on the shoulder. So I reckon we stumble on and bumble on through till May, and we just have to see what the great British electorate think. And if it's a massive thumbs down, um, the Tory party, one of their main hobbies is regicide. They they always enjoy chopping people out. I mean, they chop, yeah. they chop Mrs. Thatcher without a bat of an eyelid. So I don't think it would be, you know, it's it's in their DNA to get with the people they don't think are going to win.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the Tory Party is exceptional. It's staying in power. Like they're the they have their number one job is to stay in power. It doesn't really matter who's at the top, what the policy is. Um, That's just my vision from the outside. They just seem to be like, okay, um, this is not working. We want to stay in power.
1: You know, they kind of flex around. You could not say that the current administration is the same as one under Margaret Thatcher. I mean, you could say in many ways Boris is poles apart from Mrs. Thatcher. And, of course, that's the one wing of the Tory party. It's why they don't like it. Um, But all to play for. But I think this is, we can pick through the the wreckage in May on this one.
0: Fantastic. Well, let's bring it back stateside. Here we go, Joe Biden, oh, I didn't Supreme
1: see
0: that. For the United States. Oh yeah, oh right. Here we go, yeah. Joe Biden, um, so the Supreme Court nomination, I don't want to bore our listeners, especially our listeners in China with the process, but it's quite political, usually goes on for uh, 60 to 90 days, millions of op-eds, tons of cable news time, um, you know, it's a huge fight, it's a big deal, a lot of attention, um, but this, opp- this could be a real opportunity, looking, as we're talking about, like an inflection point or a pivot, for Joe Biden to really assert himself and really get his base excited by this pick. So, uh, the timing of this, um, I don't think was by accident by any stretch of the imagination. I- um, we have a real opportunity for Joe Biden to, uh, make the case and, you know, pl- pacify the progressives in his party and make a bold pick for the Supreme court and get everybody jumped up and excited.
1: There's this sort of view that, um, Supreme Court judges seem to live forever so if you appoint one even in their 50s or 60s you might have a 20 or even 30 year run. Uh, Absolutely,
0: it's the best job in Washington DC without a doubt and um, yeah and I think anybody who's going to be in that anybody that Joe Biden nominates will easily be in their late 40s early 50s so Mm -hmm. as you rightly point out they'll be on the bench for 30 40 years possibly. that's absolutely the case. But the
1: balance stays the same, does it, Mark? Are we still... Yeah,
0: so we're we're at 6-3 now. Um, yeah. But, you know, Roberts, who's the, who's the uh, head guy there at the Supreme Court, tends to side a bit more with the Liberals. Um, but, yeah, the breakdown is it'll still be 6-3, um, which is important because uh, yeah. it doesn't seem like there'd be much change in the rulings in the short term. But, you know, the opportunity for Joe Biden to, to nominate, you know, somebody of... Uh, he's saying he's going to nominate a black woman, which would be historic for a number of reasons. Um, is you know, pretty exciting, but it just gives you a huge opportunity. There's there's some discussion that the Roe v. Wade, you know, the abortion choice issue could be decided this summer, which equally is important going into the midterms. Um, but this is a real opportunity. I mean, what's interesting, Joe Biden could possibly have a really good year of the tiger. You know, maybe he does. Maybe he's playing Ukraine right. Uh, maybe he gets the, the nomination, right? And maybe he really asserts himself on the global stage. Um, quite interesting because he's yeah, had I a horrible know. first year.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. And his ratings have been dreadful and all the rest of it. Um, one thing that strikes me though, that as a politician, when people are suggesting you reset, this is the kiss of death. <laughs> you know, if you have to say, oh, don't worry, we you know, didn't do very well in the first half, we're really going to get our act together. That is actually quite a hard trick to pull off, isn't it? I mean, there have been uh, examples of people who, who who have come back. One always thinks of Bill Clinton when he was on the campaign trail as the comeback kid. But yeah, in this in this day and age now, this sort of hyper media age, um, any hint of trouble and you know you you become the news, or your your role becomes the news rather than the policy, isn't it? So, yeah, well, it's
0: interesting. I think in the UK we have yeah. a we have a personality situation. Here in the states, we have a policy situation, and um, there's just a lot of energy suggesting that the Republicans will take over the House of Representatives. Yeah. In the uh, midterm election, um, but so maybe reset is not the right word. Re-energizing or giving, you know, oh, that's basically
1: a great thing. A marvelous spin on that. I very uh, very <laughs> impressed. <wasn't it? laughs> Uh, so we, we can all look the DNC should to.
0: send me. Yeah, the Democrat National Committee should send me a check. But I, you know, looking at it, in some ways, the first year has been a bit of a slog because it's been focused on COVID, build yeah. back better, you know, kind of minutiae. Um, but there's nothing better uh, to generate interest than the Supreme Court nomination, I think, in terms of getting your base excited about you being in office.
1: And is there any sense that Biden, I think you put up a, um, a tweet a few weeks ago, noting how many days to go before you had to put his nomination Yeah, I th- in. Do you think- Yeah, I think what's be-
0: interesting is, no, I think what people aren't really, there's nobody's talking about that I know, but February 4th of 2024 is, or February, give me one of the two days, say February 2nd, February 4th, 2024, is the first vote in Iowa right? The Iowa caucus oh, and the whole, um, whole
1: thing starts again,
0: the primary starts in 2024. So if you're going to run for president, you're going to announce in 23, which is a year from now. So,
1: so we're talking um, autumn 23. Was that a kind of
0: exactly after he well, no, I think even by the January, just because of fundraising and kind of clearing the field, um, you'll have people after the midterm election in November, December, say that they're gonna run for president. In 24, because um, the process really starts a year out. So what I'm saying to you is, I think Biden's going to have to decide, at the latest by March of 2023, right. whether or not he's going to actually run for president again, because just like the Democrat, just like the Tory Party, does not like to not be in power, the Democrats also don't like to be in power, and I don't think they're going to want to enter, you know, an election year without knowing what the hell's going on. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think Biden has a year to decide what the hell he's going to do.
1: Yeah, so no chance of having a wildly young president in their 60s then, by the sounds of things, is it? I mean,
0: uh, I mean, I think what happens, I think Biden actually, uh, I don't think he, I think he announces his retirement in um, bow out. 23, puts in Harris. Um, they She brings in a younger vice president and we go that way, but that's my yeah. prediction.
1: But you can't, you know, if you're this.
0: president, you can't announce you're going to be a lame duck. So,
1: oh, no, that's the problem, isn't it? The moment you do that, yeah, uh, this this is, I think, happened to a few um, British prime ministers. They said, "Oh, well, I won't fight the next general election," and they kind of said yeah. overnight. The power just keeps away. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. In some ways, getting back to our you know friends in China, like Xi Jinping is facing the same thing. You know, I mean. He, the fact there isn't that he's a suggesting...
1: view, isn't a general view if he only gets the five-year rollover he hasn't actually achieved what he really wants to do is he trying to go for a, a lifetime kind of yeah
0: he wants the lifetime because no he doesn't want the lame duck situation because just like we have factions in the west there are factions in the east and if she's saying i'm done <laughs>
1: well, yeah, yeah,
0: somebody in shanghai will be like well i want to be you know i want to be president of china so um the factions are very interesting, but I think, yeah, Joe Biden has a big year ahead of him.
1: Right. <clears throat> All
0: right, let's wrap it up.
1: Oh, it's reading you and writing. I didn't see that one. I didn't get the uh, inside track on that. Reading and watching. Oh, reading and watching.
0: Okay. What are we reading? What are we watching? Um, well, do, want, do you want to go first?
1: Well, yeah. This I is.
0: Think... We should tell our viewers we're gonna at the end of every show here we're gonna you know provide insights on our uh, voluminous media diet
1: yeah uh, misleading favorable reviews probably <laughs> um well i let uh, a guy who i only came across a few years ago um five or six years ago australian guitarist uh called tommy emmanuel he is absolutely stunning um he's he's of an age he's not a youngster he's probably in his 50s i think now maybe slightly older but he is just a brilliant acoustic guitar player and um that well-known us uh uh tune classical gas i would recommend if you just t- tap in classical gas tommy emmanuel into youtube he will blow your socks off there you go
0: well that's a bold statement well i'm confident in uh- it
1: um in terms of uh, other, other things well i'm starting on a very long uh, book called the Silk Roads um by a chap called Peter Frankopan yeah he's, he's not so an academic um it's a 600 page job um and it's basically he's just recasting a lot of what we've been talking about recasting the the kind of view of the world and not putting the center of the world in the past at the Mediterranean but shifting it much further to the east the, the so-called Silk Road, and he's he's put it in the plural because he's looking at things like not just trade, but religion, uh, right. politics, technology, all this stuff. Um, I, I think it'll be a, a good read and um, yeah, keep me quiet for a while.
0: No, I think it's, um, I know very little about that part of the world. In fact, even this week, one of the things I watched, it was um, it was a BBC documentary about Vienna, which I've, I've only I've only been to uh, Innsbruck. I haven't made it all the way across. Oh, yeah. Which I I hear it's beautiful, but the Habsburgs. I like literally, you know, I've heard about them, but yeah, yeah, no idea. Thousand year reign and just the Ottoman Turks and you know they're at the center center of the world. the Vienna is that, Congress
1: um, is that Simon Seabag Montefiore, I think, was the guy who did it um again, in, in show notes uh he's written some brilliant history books in general
0: but it all, yeah in some ways it's all like coming together with ukraine like eastern europe it's like it's still you know we like to think it's funny you mentioned the silk road because we like to think we're living in modern times we're dealing with the metaverse you know nfts all this kind of crazy stuff but yet we're still dealing with you could say the vienna congress or we're still dealing with traders. Some of these
1: things never go away we we touched on the Balkans earlier for a moment and you know one of the one of the big divides in the Balkans is the split of the Roman Empire yeah you know, that it split into East and West and then the East went to a slightly different form of Christianity and then of course they went um uh, to follow Islam and all the rest of it but the the kind of um tectonic plates where they kind of split is where the East and West of the Roman empire split. And we're talking what, right. 1500 years ago.
0: <laughs> right, We're still dealing with that. Um, well, you, I'm, I, I'm reading this book called uh, Algorithms to Live By, which is quite interesting. That's a um, fun read. It's actually quite, yeah, it, it's all about algorithms as you would imagine, and various theories and various formulas, um, all right. but it's really interesting how I mean, I mean, I'm not a computer scientist, but I hear, i you always hear about algorithms and whatnot, but literally how computer scientists have to decide what algorithms to use to kind of run our lives and decisions they make, how much information they're going to capture. Um, it's been quite interesting. And um, getting back, it's interesting. You mentioned the new music is one of the opening chapters talks about exploring versus exploding. So. You know, I, I know what music I like to listen to. Should I exploit that knowledge, keep listening to it? But we're in this battle to be like, oh, I want to find new music. I'm to explore for new stuff. Um,
1: yeah, so, no, it's is, a really good book. Yeah, this is an area I'm, I'm really interested in because I think this is sort of digital versus analog. And my, right. kind of, my kind of view is that digital is a bit sterile because it really looks at past data. It's a, yeah. that's a very generalized way of looking at it. And if you're looking for new ideas, or just chance or serendipity or whatever, it pretty much happens in the analog world. Now, digital, yeah. digital is making the running because it makes life more efficient. Um, but it doesn't really come up with new stuff. Um, I, I but have, is it, getting, you know, anything new from digital.
0: Yeah, and getting back to the algorithm, um, would YouTube music serve me up acoustic music from Australia? You know, probably not likely, but hearing it from you, you know, having a a, uh, face-to-face conversation, hearing about it, word of mouth, um, it's still a very powerful technology. Recommendations, humans saying, hey, I like this, check it out.
1: You know, AI, has it ever come up with a new recipe for cooking? I I, I don't know. I mean, there doesn't seem anything very creative in it. It may be very good at telling me the best way to scramble my eggs or the you know the precise quantities of uh, yellow oak and, and white part of the uh, egg, but I don't see it necessarily going to come up with a new dish based on eggs. I may be yeah. wrong, but I think this is the challenge. I think people who are, 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 you know, going on a lot about AI and and um, all this digital stuff have to deliver something that is genuinely new, rather than a more efficient version of what's actually old.
0: There you go. Yeah, because you got to keep that venture capital gravy train going. <laughs> 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 All right, Gerald, this was great. Yeah. I'm sure we'll be uh, picked up in uh, my favorite broadcasting channel, RAI, our, our right? The uh, Italian news outlet.
1: You mentioned them. Are you hoping to get a gig in Rome at some stage?
0: I'm hoping to get a gig in Rome. Absolutely. Whatever. I'm hoping to be the uh, correspondent for. We, uh, need do, the we need
1: to do a lot of product placement, so I need to go off and decide which products I'm. You know, I have a T-shirt on next time. My favorite. Product. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, you can buy this space here, by the way. I'm yeah. willing to sell. This, this is thing. available at the
1: moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Good stuff. All right, Joe, thank you very much. That was great. Um, we'll see you in two weeks. At the, uh, the Olympics will be going on. It'll be the year of the Tiger. And um, I suspect we'll still be talking about Boris and still be talking about uh, the Ukraine.
1: I think you're right. It's been great fun. Thank you.